tonight on Arena. In TV, we look at One Day, Ted, and the final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And we have live music from husband and wife team, Driven Snow. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. This week in our TV reviews, David Nichols' beloved bestseller One Day has had the screen treatment previously when Anne Hathaway and Jim Sturgis played a couple who meet and deeply connect and where the relationship resonates in some form or another on the anniversary of their meeting July the 5th St. Swithin's Day. Now, Netflix brings us a TV version of the love story and simply calls it one day. It becomes a 14-episode miniseries. Next up, after 25 years and 11 previous seasons, Larry David will be returning one last time for the final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm on Sky Comedy. And now, the series made its debut, believe it or not, all the way back in the year 2000 renowned for its improvised dialogue and David's political incorrectness. And finally, Ted, a prequel series to the film franchise created by Seth MacFarlane, who also created the likes of Family Guy, American Dad and The Orville. It follows a sentient teddy bear whose moment of fame has passed and it is set to premiere on Sky Max and now this Friday evening, joined in studio this evening by Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser. Jen, um... It's not the first time that David Nichols' <laughs> novel has been adapted for the screen, mm. clearly. Um, but bring us back to the success of the novel itself. Yeah, like mega hit from 2009, translated into 40 different languages and I think over 6 million copies sold worldwide and counting. They're still, you know, buying it. And mm. it's become one of those touchstones of modern pop popular fiction um, and it, it you know it really did capture the imagination of its readers and it was one of those word of mouth hits where people yeah. were like you have to read this and you have to read this now and the way it was presented with as you said the St. Swithin's Day meet up yeah. every f- few years so like you're, you're journeying through a life with this would-be couple and you can see how that works so well in, in the novel format Yeah, because um, you're dipping in and out of their lives continuously and you have both their voices in your head and of course like because if something becomes such a, a massive pop culture sensation you, you will have the inevitable screen adaptation yeah. But it didn't play out the way I think that David Nichols would have wanted, even though he was the screenwriter for the 2011 film. So the, the film, possibly this is closer. And I suppose the long form of 13 episodes I is think, something closer to the chapters of the book. Exactly. It, it, it really benefits from the format, the episodic yeah. format of TV, because you're right there on these different days with them. Yeah. And it doesn't try to squeeze everything in into 90 minutes or an, an hour over an hour of film. A film has film. to do yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, which is the good thing about it, because you can dig into these characters yeah. and their lives and it's, it's in some ways the revisiting of the same day uh, you know year after year or with maybe a couple of years missing it along the way Chris again not the most uh, a novel to use that <laughs> term of ideas however what we get here and again not the most novel of ideas opposites attract chalk and cheese that's what we're dealing with in terms of uh, Emily Emma and Dexter yeah you wouldn't put Dex and them together at all uh, but they well, are well unless it was fiction and then you would <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right but they are drawn to one another on the on their graduation night at the University of Edinburgh in 1988 uh, and it's a fairly standard meet cute um, mm. kind of um, 
it's a, it's actually their meet cute is a lot bigger in the in in this series than it is in the novel. But they meet you know on a dance floor. It's an outdoor extravagant end of term ball. Uh, you know they 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 catch one another's gaze. That one of them asks the other one for a drink, and they basically just spend the night talking. And for Dex, you think it's going to be because they call each other Dex and Emma, not Dexter and Emma. Yeah. Uh, they call you know they, for Dex, he thinks it's going to be just another one night stand. But Emma doesn't do one night stands. And when they get back to her apartment. They, they end up chatting, they end up laughing at one another, they end up bickering, they end up kind of taking the mickey out of one another. Um, but they're just drawn. They're, they're yeah. clearly enjoying the, the, the yeah, conversation. But but he's a bit of a, you know, he's unapologetically vain. Uh, he's obnoxious. He's a bit of a tough. She is uh, a northerner who is quite ambitious and wants to, uh, you know, she wants to write. She wants to be in plays. Uh, when she asks him what he wants to do with his life, the first thing he starts talking about is the holiday is going to go on. Yeah. When, when she asks him, what, what, right. where do you want to be at 40? He says rich and famous. So they, they're, you would not put them together but they can't help but be drawn to one another all right let's listen to uh, a scene um after the in inverted commas one night stand the yep. one night that they've spent talking to each other uh, and uh, emma played here by amdika bond ahmad rather and dexter played by leo woodhall to one night stands are we drinking to one night stands in the future because we didn't actually have one. Yeah. No, uh, no. Is it a religious thing? Not sleeping together? Hmm, OK. Right. So unimaginable is it that someone might decline to have sex with you, that it could only be explained as an order from God himself. Shut up. No, it's just a question. I mean, maybe a stupid question, but... My mum's Hindu, and my dad's a lapsed Catholic, so, no, God was not involved. I hope it doesn't feel like a night wasted. Wasn't a night wasted. It's memorable. Not having sex with you is highly memorable. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Leo Woodhull, the last voice you heard there as Dexter and Amdika Maud as Emma or M and Dex as Chris Wasser has been very clear I should call them I, <laughs> I felt um, as I was listening and watching I watched the first two episodes there today Jen nice chemistry between the two of them um, look I think there are things to enjoy <laughs> M in, says in it this, all <laughs> like, in the 14 in the episodes like the 12th that I've seen I think you know there is things to enjoy and I do think Ambika Maud uh, she's you've seen her before and this is going to hurt I mean I think she's to be commended yeah. for breathing life and realism into a character that I think could be just reduced to this sarcastic kind of woke scold and I do think that Leo Woodall everyone was really charmed by him in The White Lotus. I think um, he's shown a very different size to, to himself in this. It's He's effective and he is that there has enough charisma to make Dex, mm. you know, necessarily charming because he, he would just be a feckless, tough, tough posho yeah. without that. But I don't know if they have the chemistry required for this kind of series because, I mean, I think because of the way it's set up, because of the format where they're, you're dropping into their lives every couple of years, there is a feeling I get where it feels like you're just meeting these characters again for the first time and it's like they're meeting each other each again other, for yeah, the first yeah. time so you don't have that familiarity that should build up with something like say normal people which I think Netflix are were probably salivating thinking this is a college based deep romantic drama we've got you know ding 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 we've got another normal people yeah. on our hands mm-hmm. and this is not what that is this is kind of skirts on the edge of like Richard Curtis style farce that's where it is it's broad broad 
bad characterization, which I found very difficult to bear. I mean, they never seem to leave those tightly bound, right. you know, characters that they have built up. She is just this, you know, working class, salt of the earth, you know, very dedicated young woman. And, and he is just this gad, you know, this uh, yeah. man about town. And they, they never seem to evolve from from those two very strict kind of characters. Is that, that, is that coming, Chris, uh, what, do you agree with uh, Jen, first of all? And does it come from the writing? Or is it, what about the performances of um, Abika Maud and uh, Leo Woodhull? I think the writing isn't, uh, the writing is never as sharp as the performances are. Um, and actually, you would never know that David Nichols is a very funny writer mm. from this series. And though Nicole Taylor has done uh, tremendous work before, loved her um, mm. her work on Wild Rose. She did Jessie the screenplay Buckley. here, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, she is leading the charge here in the writer's room. Um, it's a bit of a downer. It is very much in the normal uh, normal people vein in that, you know, there are episodes that go on and on where it's just constant arguing and tears and anxiety and just, you know, two 20-somethings realising that life doesn't go the way. You not in love when you were 20, Chris. What's that? <laughs> were you not in love when you were 20? I was all over the place when I was in my 20s, you know. And, yeah. and that's actually, Tears and, and rows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I suppose that is actually real life. Um, but when you when it's staring back at you on the screen, hmm. Uh, mm. and, but Nichols is very funny and some, yeah. of, that, some of that comedy doesn't, doesn't come through here. But I... I quite liked the two of them together I thought Leo Woodall actually following on from something Jen said like Dex is very difficult to like at times and treats M very badly but Leo Waddle just always has something in him that lets you know that there's a good soul in there that yeah. there's a good person somewhere and that's what Emma can see as well um, and I also think that this f- series probably gets another star because it made me forget all about the film and I just thought the film was just <laughs> yes. it, the film was discombobulated yeah. just poorly cast right. no chemistry whatsoever but after watching this so, I think you, you, it's impossible to imagine any other What is that star them. rating for you? I think it's going to be four stars I mean as I said it is a bit of a downer and it did bruise my heart a little bit but at times it brightened my day it feels like because of the format it feels like checking in on, on, on a couple of old friends every, first love every, every bruised of your heart and brightened your day <laughs> all in the one go um, Jen I'm just an old cynic obviously because I just think it's a romantic story that never reaches the depths that it should and for me it wasn't a romance for the ages I think it's endlessly bingeable it's very beautiful to look at there are some good performances the less said about M's comedian ex-boyfriend the better an absolutely <laughs> woeful character that should have been erased from all all of it from fiction any, any fiction at all but it is completely watchable and I can't see why people right. will be attracted to it but for me it was a no-no watchable <laughs> but no-no is what you, what, did you give it a star rating? I didn't I would give it look for the performances themselves uh, I would probably give it a three then a three okay let's go on to Curb Your Enthusiasm Larry David returns once again for the 12th and final season uh, since it first began 25 years ago he's not returning again for a final season but he's back (laughs) with us he's not going to tease us now will there be several final seasons here Chris or do you think this is True. I don't know. I mean, let's not forget that there was a six-year gap between seasons eight and nine. Um, so when I heard Larry David say this is the final season, I thought, yeah, right. You know, as okay. long as Larry David, who's now 76, by the mm. way, but as long as, as he's on this earth, I'm going to be wondering when's the next Curb coming. And it's actually weird because... Explain, explain who the character is for those who are not aware of, uh, of Curb. Yeah, for the uninitiated, he is uh, playing a fictionalised version of himself, a grumpy television writer who wishes that the world would operate on his level. And although in this world he is, you know, it's, it's the same as Larry David in real life, 
life. You know, he yeah. has he was the co-creator of Seinfeld. Um, and, you know, so people as a result, people recognize him on the street. But he's forever getting himself into the most excruciatingly awkward social interactions because he can't let anything go. And he thinks that everyone should behave and believe the things that he does. And he's just he's always getting himself into trouble. So after uh, 111 episodes of just uh, basically pissing off everybody around them, neighbors, strangers, fellow, you know, yeah. actors and filmmakers, um, somehow he still has new people to annoy in this new season. <laughs> okay. Or be annoyed by. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's let's listen to a, a scene which featured to him speaking to a woman who has been queuing to vote for two hours. It's a very hot day. Be very careful what you do anywhere near a polling station on an election day. You can land yourself in all kinds of trouble. It's hot out here, Larry. Boy, this is brutal. Yes. How long have you been waiting? Over two and a half hours. What? Yes. That is just insane. It's horrible. What could they put people through just to vote? I'm melting out here, Larry. You know what? I got some water in the car. Do you want it? I would love yeah. it. Yeah. Quiet, chubby. There you go. I knew this would come in handy. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. Mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm. Thank you. Sir! In the Navy blazer, put your hands in the air. Me? Yeah, you. You under arrest for violation of the Election Integrity Act. What? What are you talking about? It is illegal for anyone in the state of Georgia to provide food or water to voters in line at the polls. What? That's barbaric. What kind of law? Are you serious? I'm dead serious. You're coming with me. You can't do it. Oh, no, you're making a big mistake. I'm sorry, baby. I forgot. I'm not even from here. I just came to make an appearance at a party, and I didn't even get paid. I was just being cordial. I was being cordial. <laughs> there you go. The electric, the Election Integrity Act was um, <laughs> what got him into trouble there. That's Larry David in a scene from Curb Your Enthusiasm. I mean, it's it's so funny and it has that kind of stand-up comedy mm. r- r- improvised feel to it, but it's happening on a screen with lots of characters around him. It's, it's him... But he does rely on the cast as well. He does, Jen. and like it has expanded, like with JB Smoove in it as Leon, um, mm. who came into it as you know his housemate almost in a way, and he added another layer and a, 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 another strength to the show. I think yeah. that we never really expected. And then people like you know Susie Essman and, and Jeff Garland are always there to prop him up as well. And I think there's something. I would watch, you know, Larry David argue about his sandwich being wrong. Or dis- <laughs> and he would argue about it. Oh, God, he would. Or, or, you know, disagree about how hotel cleaners operate or whatever. And I think it's a thing of beauty. And his complete neurosis about the <laughs> orderly banal is something that was elevated, you know, it, in Seinfeld. But this is another level of it in Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's like distilled genius. And I think, you know, that's the thing that moves it away from its contemporaries because yeah. it is so focused on one man's, you know, impotent rage against the world, his pure pettiness and about all its infuriating mm. contradictions. And I think Larry David himself gets such a kick out of putting putting David. himself though yeah. through these, you know, nightmares. It yeah. almost is like it's cleansing his own soul to, to <laughs> yeah. watch himself, a version of himself in yeah. these Kafka esque nightmares, these small yeah. nightmares you, updates. Do you believe it's the last episode? Will you be sad to see it go? I will be definitely 
sad to see it go because I think Larry David doesn't owe us anything at this stage. You know, he has given us decades of peerless comedy. Like I think Seinfeld is the, is the best yeah, yeah. sitcom ever written. Mm. And I think Curb, when it was announced that this would be the last season, it did feel like the right time. But I do think we have taken it for granted for a long time. You know, it's been on for so long. And I understand that some viewers think they're tired of it or tired of the yeah. format. But I do think, I'm you know, sure we will miss it when it's gone. We definitely will. It will always have a place in the pantheon yeah. of comedy. I'm and sure there are a bundle of TV execs and several focus groups who were tired of it and that may be the reason for the last season. But what will yeah. ever replace it? I yeah, don't think there, there is go. anything you star, know, is it, I presume is it getting the, the, the full Monty star I, rating? Definitely, I can't give a Larry David production anything but five out of five. Five plus. What are you saying overall, <laughs> I think in Chris? terms of people getting tired of it, after 25 years, if Rust isn't starting to set into any sort of comedy like that, I'd be, I'd be shocked. Um, yeah. But even if it, even if this series of what, what we've seen of it so far, if it's not quite vintage Corb, it's still great Corb and I'll take that over no Corb. Exactly. So I'll go with uh, four out of five. And I noticed that you're both curbing to beat the band there. <laughs> yeah. None of you are saying the whole title from you cool kids on the block. Uh, curb your enthusiasm for the rest of us is what we've been speaking about. Four, four from you. You're not giving us a full five. Okay. Yeah, now I feel bad. All right. <laughs> well, he'll be somewhere in Hollywood yeah, uh, say, raging yeah, over that. He's raging about yeah. his four star of you for his exactly. 12th season. Your band um, <laughs> cancelled. <laughs> Finally, let's move on then to Ted, a prequel TV series to the Ted films uh, created by Seth MacFarlane, who also provides the voice of the title character, Ted himself, a sentient teddy bear whose moment of fame has passed. Uh, I mean, it is, it's such a wonderful kind of starting point, this, but we've had a couple of films and now we're, we going, have. To, now we're going to stretch it out into a TV prequel. Yeah, Chris. it's not a bad idea. This idea of this 30-something Boston man-child who, you know, as an eight-year-old wished that his teddy bear was real, you know, his wish came true because he wished upon a star. You're, when you're eight, your teddy bear is real. That, that's it, yeah. <laughs> um, but then as an adult, he just can't get rid of this obnoxious fell-mouthed teddy bear voiced by Seth MacFarlane who creates and writes. Mm. Um, that's that's a decent idea. Uh, but still, the success of the film surprised the hell out of me. We're talking $550 million at the box office, uh, a sequel that made around half of that. And I know that doesn't sound great, but that's still an impressive haul for an R-rated comedy. Yeah. Um, and I think because of, you know, there was so much money involved and the fact that Seth MacFarlane is still quite popular thanks to, you know, the fact that Family Guy is still on television, the Orville was such a success. Uh, I think a television uh, adaptation was inevitable. It's just disappointing that it, it is a prequel and in the first 30 seconds we have Ian McKellen we have Patrick Stewart explaining the plot in the films yeah. and here we have his pal Ian McKellen so that's a bit of an in-joke um, but in the first 30 seconds of the first episode it tells you that when Johnny was a boy in Massachusetts in the 90s or in the, in the late 80s I think it was um, he wished that Ted was real and Ted became this celebrity and everyone wanted to talk to him and he was in Hollywood for a while and then eventually you know the public lost interest now that's hilarious that the public would lose interest in talking teddy bear so we pick up then with Ted with his family and Boston. Yeah. But I'm I'm just thinking that you've run a mile from from a good setup there. That should have been the series. Like I think I think an actual prequel series that examines what happens mm. when a family realizes they have a talking teddy bear in the house for yeah, the first would, time. That should be the yeah. series. But unfortunately, so get, that's not the one we're getting. We get a teenage John here, the Mark Wahlberg character yes. in the movies. We get a teenage version of him in in, and we're going to hear it in the clip here. Uh, Blair, Johnny's sister, comes downstairs. She's dressed for party. Ted is dressed as Ewok. Blair is dressed as Catwoman and Susan, the mum, has to guess why they're, why they're dressed up and Johnny is not at all amused because he can't go out with them. Oh, my God, you two look so adorable. Thank you. All right, let me guess who you are. Blair, you're uh, Batman. Close. 
Catwoman. Okay. And Ted, you're Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, now don't worry, Johnny. I'll be back by nine. Right, Blair? That was the deal. Yeah, sure. Whatever. We're gonna miss the first round. Yeah, but that's just the little kids. We'll have plenty of time to shame the puberty crowd. Yeah, I guess. Okay, well, we gotta go. All right, Bye. you two. You have a fun time now. Oh, Johnny, don't look so sad. I have a fun surprise for you. What is it? I've hidden a heat bar somewhere in this house. Can I get a hint? Oh, I can't do this to you. It's in the hamper. I'll go get it. There we go. Uh, that's um, Alana Eubank as the, as the mom. We also heard Georgia Wiggum as Blair, who's the sister. And Max Burkholder, who's playing the Johnny character. Mm. It's still Seth MacFarlane voicing the voice is, of Ted. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Max Burkholder is playing the, the Teddy character. He's the, aging down. For, or not the Teddy, the, the, the Johnny character. Yeah. yeah. He's aging down. He's uh, a 26-year-old man playing a 16-year-old boy. So <laughs> this is grease levels of suspending your disbelief there. Right. But like, I think that outline, like the, it is a neat concept, I think, because it is trying, it's a, a meta take on those classic 80s American sitcoms. So, you know, Ted is taking the shape of Alf or something. Mm. Like he's like a rude version of Alf or, or Small <laughs> Wonder, that sitcom about a robot that becomes adopted by a family. In <laughs> very yeah. that. And like the show follows those generic templates um, about winning against bullies or the first two episodes are set up like a Just Say No episode of like Different Strokes or Punky Brewster. But that's all well and good. But then it's, and they do mind those cliches of mm. sitcoms for all their worth. But I just think that Seth MacFarlane, he has a certain sensibility, a certain kind of humour, and he can't escape his eternal desire to shock and be controversial. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was, I was wondering about that, because even in the clip, um, I was wondering how potty-mouthed is the clip going to be, mm. because Ted mm. is certainly potty-mouthed, and Johnny, uh, the Mark Wahlberg version of Johnny at 30 or whatever age he is at that point, he's pretty potty-mouthed as well. Yeah. Um, is, this a, is this a kind of a sanitised version of all of that? Oh, no, no, no. Chris? The pure sense of humour is there. Is there? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it just, it's... It's, it's allowed to drag on for longer than necessary. Um, and, and also, and the runtime is a big problem because the first episode clocks in around 22 minutes, but later episodes get to 45 and 50 minutes and you're thinking this is supposed to be a sitcom. So even the self-contained storylines yeah. in each episode, they just drag. Some lovely ideas here. Uh, I think it says a lot that the funniest um, the funniest scenes are the ones where Ted is left alone without humans and we get to see what it's like when a teddy bear has to preoccupy himself. And the CG and live action stuff is actually quite clever. Right. So right. basically what I'm saying is when it's quiet... It actually works when you're not listening to the drone of everyone shout yeah, and yeah, yell yeah. these lines and jokes that, that, that aren't working. Um, but I just think it, it often resembles a comedy sketch that got out of hand. And it's so disappointing that they're running a mile. I know, I know I'm saying it again from that great idea. If you want to do another series, make it about the teddy bear coming to life. <laughs> I, would, just, I would give that a go. It's not a fresh take on Ted at all, the story no. of Ted at all, because a teenage version of John or Johnny is almost identical to the 30-something, you yes, know, the Arrested tried. Development, yeah. Mark yeah. Wahlberg played as well yeah. so we're not getting anything different it's basically look it's critic proof because Seth MacFarlane has his hardcore fans that love his type of humour and your opinion will be disregarded because you, you know they think you're woke but whatever but I just think it's like a live action family guys so you know okay. already Stars you have a massive you. audience it starts for you Jen two <coughs> two 
I'll give it two. One of those stars is probably for the cast, and I'll say this. It's not easy to act alongside the tennis ball, which is probably what they were doing. Mm. And they do make it look impressive <coughs> you at mean times. The, the Ted? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't yeah. even know what they were using in place of a CGI bear, but they, they do give it a good shot. That's what they call acting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I believe. All right. Uh, Jen Gannon and Chris Wasser there. One Day will be available on Netflix from tomorrow, Thursday, February the 8th. The 12th and final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm is out now on Sky Comedy and Now and episodes every Monday oh, with episodes every Monday rather and then Ted the series will be out on now and Sky Max from this Friday February the 9th now Rough Magic uh, one of our most exciting independent theatre companies is celebrating 40 years on the go this very weekend um, the company has continued to produce award winning shows and to nurture new talent Shows like Copenhagen, Probable Frequency, Solo Bones, Shakespeare in the Castle, Yard of Kilkenny spring to mind immediately. There are many others, of course. And there will be a series of events to mark this 40th anniversary, headed up with a live Arena Rough Magic special from the Project Arts Centre on Friday night of this week, February the 9th, starring, among others, Booker Prize-winning writer Anne Enright, Irish Times Theatre Award winners Owen Rowe and Eleanor Methvin, writer and performer Arthur Reardon, and a lot more uh, of the cast and people associated with Rough Magic down the years will be with us on the night. Of course, you can listen to us here on RTE Radio 1, if you so wish, but you can come along as well to witness the performance and the chat uh, and you can find out about how to do that and indeed about the other events that are happening this weekend by going to projectartcentre.ie Paul and Linda McCartney, Jay-Z and Beyonce, Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash and ABBA just some of the examples of musical couples now to add to that illustrious list. We have Kieran McGuinness and Emily Elmer, Elmer, a married couple who play music together as Driven Snow. Both are veterans of the Irish music scene, of course. Kieran, the lead singer of De Laurentos, Emily sang with Republic of Loose. They are set to release their debut album this Friday, which is called A Kind of Dreaming. And I'm delighted to say that they are here with me in studio this evening. The husband and wife thing kind of is is always going to be the first question, really, isn't it, Kieran? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's okay. You know, <laughs> uh, we can't run away from it. No, uh, um, uh, I think we've we've been making music. Well, I've, I've been making music. Mm. She's making music, and together we've sort of. Uh, I don't know, we, we were sounding boards for each yeah. other's well, kind of songs for a long time. We, we had no choice then when COVID hit, so it was actually, you know, we had been talking about it for a really long time. Mm. But it was actually a little bit of a respite from the busyness of gigging that gave us the chance to do it, so it was good. And and had there been, you know, at home, might you, would you have been noodle around, noodling around at stuff and at potential songs? Ah, yeah. That uh, then when a, the pandemic came, you actually said, let's, let this be a little bit more than noodling. We, yeah, well, what, I mean... Did you, did it give structure to your work for it that did, period? It did, but uh, the funny thing was, because well, years before we had kids, we had kind of thought about doing a little bit of writing together, just because I hadn't had the chance to do it really much, and I thought I would try and coax Kieran into working with me a little bit. But then we were really busy, and then when we finally um, had children, we started singing, of course, because, you know, what else to do to try and get them get to sleep? Them to so, sleep. yeah, we were singing a lot, and then we kind of thought, and we were listening to all these songs on Spotify to try and get them to relax, and then we thought, oh, well, we could probably try our hand at that. So we decided to record a few pop songs or 
songs that we liked in a kind of a lullaby version. So that's how we kind of started actually putting structure on it. And then mm. when we did that and kind of showed it to a few friends, they were like, well, maybe you should do some writing of your own. So we did. Yeah, because, I mean, what what you're talking about there is essentially a kind of, a, I suppose, a, a way of dealing with kids. And it, it yeah. has that feeling of kids in inverted commas songs to it. Mm. That's not what we get in the album. The album is a, called A Kind of Dreaming. And I love the fact that you brought into me tonight a kind of dreaming colouring book, which has all sorts of little bits and pieces that need to be coloured inside, including on the very inside cover, Emily and Kieran. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. two of you there are line drawings of you to be coloured in this evening. Well, do you know, um, it's just all of this has kind of just had to fit into our lives. So yeah. we wrote the songs at night time and... When the, the kids were asleep. The album, yeah. yeah, and the themes of the album very quickly became about sleep and dreaming <laughs> and waking and nighttime and moonlight and stuff like that. And the songs are gentle as well because yeah. we couldn't sing out and we couldn't, you know, it was just the piano. <laughs> They're asleep, the, yeah. no loud songs, yeah. please. Yeah, yeah. Okay, listen, let's uh, let's have a listen to what is the final track actually on, on is, the yeah, album. Yeah. Um, Nothing as hard as love. And I should have said too that Cormac Curran is in with you on piano this evening helping the husband and wife team along. <laughs> I reach for the space in our bed Maybe you're lying there Maybe all this was a dream All that I feel is a cold Cold of a memory Knowing all this isn't real Life calls me to breathe Calls me to breathe for us And time makes me believe Nothing is hard as love I stand on the train in my suit Where am I going to? Drifting and out of a dream Water turns cold in the back
Beautiful. Nothing as hard as love there from A Kind of Dreaming, the debut album from Driven Snow. Driven Snow being Kieran McGuinness and Emily Ilmer. And in with Kieran and Emily this evening performing live for us, Cormac Curran on piano there. What's the division of labour when it comes to the song, <laughs> uh, to this songwriting? Is it pure democracy? <clears throat> Is one or other of you in charge, Emily? Uh, Kieran does everything, and I swoop in and just take all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is it, it. You know, Kieran certainly has been writing for such a long time, and mm. has I think kind of gotten so much better over the years. And he certainly has the craft down, but he's very diplomatic, and he. Um, I was always kind of coming into a. a, a you know, a, a song that had been worked out to a in certain Republic extent. Loose, well, it, no, actually, I, I mean, really, with 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 the loose, I was really lucky to just be be yeah. there and sing along with them. But I didn't have any kind of input, input into the creation. Yeah. yeah, no, not really. Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, when we were singing uh, harmonies and stuff yeah. like that, but they were so, um, you know, it was all there, really. You know, but with Kieran, I guess what I do do is arrange things and you know, put in harmonies and maybe but also change yeah. the lyrics every she's time. She's very, very good at going, well, that's not going to work. And uh, <laughs> let me go, no, you're probably right. And so, yeah. that a, a very different dynamic, I would guess, from De Laurentiis, you know, where he, as the front man, and you would have been involved in a lot of the writing there, obviously, yeah. Kieran. Well, it's, 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 it's actually hugely different. I think I've had to relearn how to write to a certain extent because with De Laurentiis, uh, I would write, you know, 50% of the song mm. and leave space for the lads. Yeah. And, and there would be a lot of space for them to come in with melodies and their own touches and stuff like that. And uh, then there would also be like, we would choose the best out of the pile at the end of the, at the end of the kind of, when we got to the album. This yeah. was much more like we had to, fin- we had to finish the songs. And I, you know, it started out, I think, with me having songs and saying, what do you think? And her saying, this is what you need to change. And then after a little while, it ended up with me going, okay, I have this much. What What do you think what is next? You mm. But the yeah. whole the whole of the album was led kind of by, it was it was kind of the other way around in, you know, to the way it was before, I suppose, I've written before. I wasn't sitting and going, I'm going to write a song like this. This was like, here's what I have. Where, where, where is this leading us? And uh, yeah. it was really kind of interesting to write like that. And then, you know, we make our demos and make demos on the computer and stuff, and uh, then sit, listen to them. And Emily would come and go, "No, no, no, no." no, no, no. <laughs> and could you, could you, could you put them to one side and say, "Right, that's that for today. Let's get on with the business of family life now." Oh God, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, like we were really only doing it. Uh, you know, we're so busy. We both work full time, and obviously, the having three children is a full time job as well. And so. It was very much a nighttime project. We'd have, we'd carve out maybe an hour and a half in the evenings, you know, and uh, we had to set it aside. And sometimes we'd even have to set it aside for like three or four weeks. And, you know, so like this album has been, you know, in the process for like three, three years now, really, hasn't it? You know, so, yeah, yeah, we've had to. You you know, you say that it kind of started out with. Writing kids, writing songs for the kids. Mm. Have, have they listened to the album? Have they? Have you sat them down in front? Well, of the them? other day we, we got the them. we no. got the CDs in, <laughs> and uh, you know you test the the stuff when it comes in. So um, my mom was over, and uh, they sat down. Uh, the three three of them sat around the CD player <laughs> on each you other's three laps. Three girls, I think you said. Three, didn't three yeah. girls yeah. sit around and sat around the thing, and they were all just singing along and you know talking. You know, I was just kind of I don't know. It's just 
lovely. Like the whole. Well, I can only imagine if you get them when they're at the point where they could sing the harmonies for that. Nothing as hard as love would be five oh, part yeah, harmony. No, then when oh yeah, they'll, they'll be proper. Yeah, we'll have to. They'll, they'll be. We're working them very hard. Yeah. Now, I think, yeah. for the next one. <laughs> yeah, and just you, for the moment, you're just giving them packing the CDs. Yeah, that that's you're that's stick, exactly. <laughs> stick with well, actually, we actually evidence. were with the coloring book. We we got them to do lots and lots. So this the album's up on Bandcamp, and so with the album, when people get it, they get a copy of the coloring book. So we got. Cut, got, got a couple of colouring books laid them out in front of them and said let's do and so we just like everyone had five minutes to colour in and then we put them in with the albums <laughs> ah, lovely. with some yeah, of the yeah. albums and uh, okay. something as well for fun you've chosen uh, uh, you're going to do a cover what did you choose who chose it and why oh <laughs> point, finger pointing straight to Karen. <laughs> well um, so we did as I said we had done a good few covers you know yeah. uh, that we played around with but they felt like we were doing sleepy you know uh, simpler versions of kind of you know popper songs or whatever but this one we did a version of this and we we really i think we really took it into s- our own kind of style yeah, and it fits with us it fits with the other stuff as well i think and yeah. then again it's called when you sleep which fits in with the the thing and the the, the title like kind of dreaming comes from uh, we were watching a poet from the west of ireland on a documentary and he said uh, creating is a kind of dreaming and i don't know just when he said it i just yeah. got shivers and like uh I don't know, it just always stuck mm. with us because that's what you're kind of doing. And that's where the album title came from. Yeah, we're just yeah. making our own yeah. little thing, you know, yeah. and it's... it's, it's yeah, well, it's it is When You Sleep and it is, of course, the My Bloody Valentine song that we are about to hear from Driven Snow, Karen McGuinness, Emily Elmer and Cormac Kern on piano. Once in a while 
When You Sleep the My Bloody Valentine track performed first by Driven Snow being Kieran McGuinness and Emily Aylmer with Cormac Curran on piano Driven Snow's debut album A Kind of Dreaming is released this Friday and Driven Snow play Little Whelan's in Dublin on February 16th and 17th and you can find out full details on whelanslive.com The renowned filmmaker Norman Jewison died last month at the fine age of 97. Over the course of his career, he made diverse films that were critically and commercially successful, from Oscar-nominated film dramas like In the Heat of the Night to musical adaptations like Fiddler on the Roof to classic romantic comedies like Moonstruck. His ability to work across genre marks out his considerable legacy. In fact, with those three films, he holds the Academy Award nominations for Best Director in three different decades. Away from his own work, Jewison was passionate about fostering the film industry in his native Canada and educating the directors of the future joined by his fellow countryman Justin (laughs) McGregor this evening to reflect on Norman Jewison's legacy and to talk about the man too because in fact you did meet um, Norman Jewison we'll get to that shortly but before that tell us how he came to into the world of film which is quite a story quite circuitous route yeah, no, he was. He did a lot of plays at the University of Toronto when he was there, and got out of uh, served then in the war. Mm. Uh, and at eighteen, did a tour of the Deep South, and then was deciding what he was going to do, and went over to London and kind of did freelance work for the BBC. And then he found out when he was unemployed in London, he found out that they were going to form the CBC in about nineteen fifty-two. So he went over in nineteen fifty-one. Canadian Broadcasting Company. Yeah, yeah. the, the C- yeah, Canadian Broadcasting Company, and he starts working there as an assistant director, and then he starts directing sort of across all these genres that he's. Gonna to come back to his directs dramas and musical variety shows which were very popular in the early 50s yeah. uh, and then eventually gets recruited down to NBC where he works on like the Andy Griffiths show and eventually directs uh, Judy Garland's big comeback special which yeah. had like Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra in and where does, where does uh, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee? where do they fit into this whole story yeah so Tony Lertis, uh, Curtis is working on the is part of the Judy Garland special and they just recognise his talent and they say you should be directing feature films and he and, and Janet had a production company, so they brought him in to do a rom-com, and it went very well. And he did a few more sort of Doris Day, you know, films with mm. Rock Hudson. Did about three of those, and then realized he wanted to go into more serious kind of work and starts producing as well as directing things that start to get heavier and heavier. And in the heat of the night, certainly fits that bill, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, in the heat of the night, uh, it's funny growing up in Canada. There's a real kind of Canadian lens with which he's looking at the deep south that I think a Canadian kind of recognises and it's so mm. sympathetic really to both sides because Rod Steiger plays this hard southern sheriff Chief Bill Gillespie yeah Chief Bill Gillespie such a wonderful character and he's got a murder on his hands that's way out of his league but can't say that and he comes across this 
black man at a train station who he thinks may have been part of the crime, and it turns out he's an excellent forensic detective from the north, and his his captain the, uh, offers him to help Chief Gillespie find the, the killer. Yeah, and that man is uh, Detective Virgil Tibbs, played by uh, Sidney Poitier. Let's listen to a, a scene uh, rather, are there anything other than tense scenes in the heat of the night order? But this is a rather tense scene between Sidney Poitier as Detective Virgil Tibbs and Rod Steiger as Chief Bill Gillespie. I was visiting my mother. I came in on the 12.35 from Brownsville. I was waiting to go out on the 4.05. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the meanwhile, you just killed yourself a white man, just about the most important white man we got around here, and picked yourself up a couple of hundred dollars. I earned that money ten hours a day, seven days a week. Colored can't earn that kind of money, boy. Hell, that's more than I make in a month. Now, where did you earn it? Philadelphia. Mississippi? Pennsylvania. Not just what you do up there in little old Pennsylvania, earn that kind of money. I'm a police officer. <laughs> It's quite the scene that, you know, really isn't. That's uh, Rod Steiger as Chief Bill Gillespie, Sidney Poitier as Detective Virgil Tibbs in In the Heat of the Night. Uh, we're looking at the films of Norman Jewison, who died last month, um, and Justin McGregor is with me in studio this evening. When did you meet him and how did you meet him? I met him uh, I met him at the Canadian Film Centre, which was a centre of advanced film studies set up in uh, in Toronto. Uh, but where I really met him was that the, there was a film festival in Edmonton called Local Heroes International Film Festival, and he was in the middle of working on a film called Icarus and the Hurricane, which would just become Hurricane, which would again receive yeah. multiple Oscar nominations. And they were doing a retrospective and they were showing In the Heat of the Night. But before In the Heat of the Night, they showed a short film by a first-time filmmaker. Uh, and at the party afterwards, he tracked the filmmaker down, who I happened to be standing beside, and he started talking to him. But not like as, as master to student. It was peer-to-peer. He wanted to know, so in this shot, what were you thinking? Why did you put the camera here? Wow. So that, that in it educator colleague he was that's collegiate yeah. behavior rather than as you say teacher pupil no, he really wanted to know and he said you know the reason you know he didn't kind of make the same film over and over again that he moved between all yeah. these genres is he wanted to learn and he wanted to, how to learn how to do it new and better yeah. and in that moment you could really see it he wanted to know what was in that filmmaker's mind because maybe he that's could use that amazing, in the hurricane isn't it amazing that, that he had that facility and, yeah. and the kind of a, 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 a modesty in terms of his own ability because he had such huge hits and when you hear in the heat of the night and then you say moonstruck you go like they're at, they're at like totally opposite ends of the scale in some ways yeah, no, all of his movies are like that. But Moonstruck, he makes this lovely rom-com. Uh, John Patrick Shanley, the writer, really, really funny. Cher, absolutely fantastic <laughs> As performance. Loretta. Yeah. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And Nicolas Cage, sort of starting to experiment with the more than Nicolas Cage we know now, the kind of edgy, you know, he's a wolf who chewed off his own hand. He has these amazing monologues in it. And uh, uh, all his films are like that. I mean, Rollerball is a dystopian sci-fi action movie, and he does Fiddler on the Roof and Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm. I mean, it really is like the CV of four or five people. Yeah, let's listen to as, as a clip from Moonstruck. Uh, it's Cher as Loretta and Olympia Dukakis as her mother Rose and Loretta is absolutely delighted with the fact that she loves the wrong man. What the hell happened to you? I really don't know where to start. Your hair's different. Ma, everything is different. Are you drunk? 
No, are you drunk? No, but I have a hangover. Where's Pa? Upstairs. Johnny Camareri showed up last night. What? He's in Sicily. No more, he's not. No, he's with his dying mother in Sicily. She recovered. She was dying. It was a miracle. A miracle? This is modern times. There ain't supposed to be miracles no more. Well, I guess it ain't modern times in Sicily. He came right from the airport. He wanted to talk to you. You, you got a love bite on your neck. He's coming back this morning. What's the matter with you? Your life's going down the toilet. Cover up that damn thing. Come on, put some makeup yeah, on right, it. All right. Oh, okay, fine. Well, you got to help me. Hurry up. Oh, my God. You get it. Mother? <laughs> so Cher as Loretta Olympia Dukakis as her mother rose in a scene from Moonstruck, directed a, a, a film, in fact, that garnered uh, 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 an Oscar nomination, wasn't it, for our best director uh, for uh, Norman Jewison, who were profiling this evening a month after his uh, his demise at the age of 97. And when I was listening to that, Justin McGregor, as a Canadian, you're, you know, you were quite heavy to boast about the Canadian qualities of In the Heat of the Night. That is so New York. Say, the person who directed that has to have New York in the ve- the blood in their veins. It's such a New York film. It's so New York directed. Yeah, no, I think he was a real chameleon that way. I mean, a lot of people think that he was Jewish and obviously did yeah. Fiddler on the Roof, but he was actually a Protestant from Toronto. I think he was a real chameleon. I think he would get into the script and as a director, almost take on the directing persona, the way an actor would take on a character mm. that would help that film sort of achieve its best possible result. Yeah, it was over Christmas. I, I, Fiddler on the Roof was on the television and for one period of time. We got to watch terrestrial television and it was kind of like that old-fashioned Christmas, the big musical film. And it kind of struck me what an extraordinary film it actually is in its realisation. Yeah, I mean, especially when you think of like what's going, things that are going on in the world today. Very, very I mean, it's set yeah. in and around Ukraine and that part of the world, and very similar to what's happening this very moment in the, that part of the world as well. Yeah, they filmed between Pinewood Studios and, of course, Yugoslavia when it was still under Marshal Tito's rule, it was still a communist nation. But yeah, it has this incredible feel. Like it could have been made a month ago. Yeah. You know, it's so but timely. The other side about it is, you know, we've talked about the comedy, that kind of New York comedy of. Uh, Moonstruck and then the tense quality of In the Heat of the Night and here you have the big musical genre because Jesus Christ Superstar which is more than even musical it's a, it's a rock opera uh, where it's sung through the whole time yeah. I mean he had Jewison obviously had this phenomenal facility to just throw himself into the project yeah, and I think and really find the visuals to tell the story the best because he said he got sent an advanced copy of the Jesus Christ Superstar, the ca- the cast soundtrack, mm. and he would just listen to it. And he said the more he listened to it, the more he could see it. And he had this idea of like almost the sound is one thing and the pictures is another, and bringing them together mm. into this kind of beautiful synthesis. And I mean, the cinematography in Jesus Christ Superstar much is ad- outrageous, much so yeah, beautiful. yeah, much admired and loved in Canada. I would think, uh, Jason, is he? Yeah, no, he is. I think definitely within the industry, but I think his films are so very. I think people don't realise it's the same director. Yeah. I don't think he quite got the full respect he really, really deserved. But then what do you see to, to do that? Because what, what brings those films together? What makes them a Norman Jewison film for you? Um, I think there's always an examination of society underneath, whether it's racism in a soldier's story, hurricane in the heat of the night, whether it's corporate culture and rollerball. He's always saying, who are we? And we can be better than this. And I think that's what was really closest to his heart. All right, Justin McGregor profiling his fellow Canadian, Norman Jewison, who died last month 
at the age of 97. And that is our lot for this Wednesday evening here on Arena. Niall Fitzmaurice was the researcher. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. James Feeney was on sound. And tonight's programme produced by Sinead Egan. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, here on RTE Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.